Turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We begin a series tonight called Passing on the Faith as we will be studying 1 and 2 Timothy together. Our series subline is a charge from a father in the faith to a son in the faith for a church to hold on to the faith. And what a great privilege to have new members joining us. Let me welcome you all new members to this the family, your family of faith. Very thankful for the Egan's and Westminster Schools of Augusta and the privilege that we have to extend the work of God throughout this city through Christian education. Thank you for the work that you do. And then Campus Outreach staff, I'm so glad that you're here. We're so honored to have you as part of our membership and to know that here we seek to nourish and nurture you and then others involved with young adults, we're thankful for you as well to be a part of this gospel ministry. You can notice in our theme for our series, it's much like the theme of our vision statement, commending the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples in all generations, this privilege that we have as people of praise to pass the faith to the next generation in campus outreach and Westminster schools and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the children's ministry and many other ministries of this church allow us to fulfill what we will see tonight as this charge that Paul gives, the charge of gospel ministry. What does it mean to be faithful to gospel ministry as we study first and second Timothy we'll look deeply into this and gospel ministry begins with God as we'll see tonight and we're called to be faithful to God in gospel ministry our primary call is to God himself and that's because of God's authority and God's appointment to gospel ministry we're called to be faithful to God in stewardship of gospel ministry. Paul writes these pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, to teach us and the church what it means to be faithful to God in gospel ministry. And faithful to God in gospel ministry, we'll see tonight and all through our study, first involves being faithful to the gospel to God's truth. It is God's truth that we are called to be faithful and to pass on. But it also involves to be faithful in relationships in God's church. This charge involves faithfulness to the truth and faithfulness to the church. I'll begin reading in 1 Timothy verse 1 and tonight I'll read through verse 7. We'll pick it back up next week. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which 
promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray together. Teach us tonight by your word, O Holy Spirit, to see what the Father has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. And Father, teach us how not only we're called to live the truth, but we're called to share this truth, first in the household of faith and then to spread this good news to the ends of the earth. We pray if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know the saving love of Jesus Christ, we pray that tonight would be the day of salvation. For all of us, we pray that we would be built up in the faith and strengthened as your family. This we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Apostle Paul first visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. Having been in Corinth, he left taking Priscilla and Aquila and began to share the gospel in the city of Ephesus. He visited the synagogues and the marketplace, and much like many of the places where Paul visited, a revival or a riot or both often broke out very quickly. And in Ephesus, Paul received great response from the gospel of Jesus Christ and great opposition as well. But he stayed there for three years, we're told, teaching God's word until he eventually left. But he established and organized the church. Later, he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. We've studied that in recent years. And then he writes this letter to Timothy and to Titus, two letters to Timothy, one to Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles, as he gives them instructions for passing on the faith, instructions in gospel ministry. Timothy was a young convert from Lystra, Timothy's mother and grandmother were involved in the church that Paul had started, and obviously Paul either led Timothy to Christ or had a strong relationship with him of discipleship and leadership development. Eventually, he brought Timothy along in his ministry journeys. Timothy has been there four years, and now Paul is giving these instructions. And we'll see, as you note in the outline, first... Paul gives instructions that involve the authority for gospel ministry. Then he'll talk about the appointment to gospel ministry, and then lastly, the aim of gospel ministry. First, the authority for gospel ministry. It's found in verses 1 and 2. Authority in gospel ministry comes from God himself. Paul believes that gospel ministry is ministry of the triune God. He says that he ministers according to to God himself, the Father who has saved us and delivered us, and Jesus Christ who is our hope. In 2 Timothy, he'll remind 
Timothy that it is by the work of the Spirit that he can overcome his fears and timidity. And so all gospel ministry takes place under the authority of the triune God. Here when he says it's by the command of God our Savior, Paul's referring to a royal edict, an appointment. He believed that he was authorized, having received divine revelation from Jesus Christ, to be one of Jesus' apostles. Now, Acts chapter 1 states clearly that what we would call a capital A, a large A apostle, is one who had been with Jesus in his ministry from the time of the baptism of John through his resurrection, one who had had face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. And in 9 out of 13 of Paul's epistles, he begins by saying, my authority is not self-appointment. My authority is not by a church or the agency of man. Paul says, my authority is by Jesus Christ and the divine revelation. In saying, Paul is saying that the words you receive from me are the words of Jesus. Secondly, he says not only that it's a ministry of the triune God, but it's a ministry that extends the mission of God in the world. The apostolic ministry of Paul was extending God's mission. Here it says that it is God our Savior, language that's often used in the Old Testament, God the Deliverer, God the Redeemer, God the Savior, and he's referring to the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and even the culmination, Christ's return, the completed work of God done through Jesus Christ, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, as Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. As Matthew 28 says, all authority has been given you in heaven and in earth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. So it's a ministry of the triune God. It's a ministry that extends God's mission in the world. But it's also a ministry of authority because it's God's own power that advances the gospel. Just in this greeting Paul uses, grace, mercy, and peace, he's reminding Timothy and All those greetings when he would begin his epistles, he's reminding the church gospel ministry is the work done in God's power. It's done by God's grace, his kindness for those that are guilty and undeserving. It's done by mercy. God helps and support those who cannot save themselves. It's done by peace, the reconciliation that takes place where two previous enemies now are not simply friends, but part of the same family. It's the work of grace and mercy and peace. That's the single source of blessing that comes from the authority of God. It's overwhelming to think about. The work that we're called to do is done by the authority of God. This river of spiritual blessing that pours out on us is from heaven by God through those that have been assigned. So it's encouraging to know that we're not doing social work. We're not doing community organizing. We're not doing philanthropy. 
we're doing the work of God, the triune God, to advance and extend the mission of God in the world through bringing the continuous flow of blessing in grace, mercy, and peace. So first, he says, that's our authority, God himself. But then Paul reminds Timothy of his appointment. How do you carry out this assignment given by God? He says you carry this out in this appointment by fulfilling your charge. And we'll see in verses 3 through 5, the charge is twofold. It's first to nourish the church through the teaching of truth and also to nurture the church in building up gospel relationships. The work that he's been appointed to is teaching of the truth and it is the building up or the forming of gospel-centered relationships to build the body of Christ. First, teaching the truth. Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Now, as I mentioned, that he was a disciple of Paul and he refers to Timothy being a true son. Maybe he's referring to his earthly identity and his spiritual identity. Paul, uh, Timothy was the son of a Gentile and of a Jew, and therefore, according to Jewish law, he was illegitimate. So when Paul says he's a true son in the faith, he's maybe referring to this reality that you are whole and full and blessed and truly can identify as my true son. But likely he's talking about you've appoint, been appointed to the same family business, Timothy. You have the same mission as I to take the authority that's been given you and through that appointment to charge God's church. We read in 2 Timothy that Timothy was somewhat of a fearful leader. Timothy was one who dealt with physical problems, difficulties in his digestive system. We don't know what other difficulties, but we know that he was fearful. He probably was not the person that would match up to Paul's gifts and abilities. And I'm so thankful to know that God appointed Timothy. There's an appointment for me, there's an appointment for you, there's an appointment for all of us that may feel that you don't have the passion and you don't have the conviction of an Apostle Paul. But God brings and places and appoints true sons, true daughters, those who are part of the family business in this partnership. And we too can extend the ministry of God through first charging the truth of the gospel. Look in verse 3. He says, Remain on in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to endless genealogies which promote speculation. The problem here was false teachers in these house churches had begun to teach error and it begun to diminish the health of the church and the growth of the church. And Paul, which we'll read later, had already warned the elders at Ephesus that after he would leave, these false teachers 
would twist the law and they would cause hurt within the community of faith here. But he's called both to correct those that are in error and to commend the truth of the gospel. That's the role of the church and the pastor is to correct those that are in error and to commend the truth of the gospel. Notice some of the words and phrases that are used in 1 Timothy. The faith, the truth, the sound doctrine, the teaching, the good deposit. That little phrase, the faith, tells us that even by 60 AD, there was already a body of agreed on apostolic truth that was to be taught. How else could Timothy point out error if there wasn't agreed on doctrine that was revealing the person and purposes of God in Jesus Christ, but it was already accepted, this body of truth. Now, verses 7 through 11 talk about how these teachers distort the law. And next week, Chris Williams will explain the right use of the law and how the law was being distorted. So I won't take time to explain that, but I do want to at least highlight this reality. It was clear from Paul's writing to Timothy, the gospel is objective truth. It's eternal, it's universal, and it's objective. It's already settled. We live in a world where subjectivism has determined that no truth is settled. Not so with the gospel. It's objective truth, eternal, universal, and, and uh, objective in relation to man's relationship with God, man's need for the gospel, and the reality that only through the finished work of Jesus Christ do we have healing and hope. I mention this because Paul says that this gospel is sound doctrine. That word sound is the word that we use often when we talk about hygiene. It's the Greek word there is hygienoa, and it's just the word that we get the word hygiene. He says sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. It causes us to grow. It causes us to flourish. And false doctrine is unhealthy and will lead us to a diminished life. We need to reject subjectivism. Subjectivism in itself is a false teaching. Let me explain it this way. In today's modern therapeutic society, we're told that all the problems you have in your life are outside of you. It's what someone else has done to you. It's what society has done. And all your hope is found inside of you. And if you can only feel good about yourself and if you can only be your best self and be happy on the inside, you'll find that personal salvation. That's just the opposite of what the gospel teaches. That's subjectivism. The objective truth of the gospel is that all of your problems are inside of you. All of your problems have to do with, first, rebellion against God. Second, a selfishness that produces both insecurity and pride and demands that other people become what you need them to be. But the gospel says all of your answers are outside of you. 
It's in the objective reality of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And spiritual growth is learning how to apply that truth to all the subjective feelings and fears that you have, knowing that it is the authority of God triune in his finished work on the cross that aligns all of that unsettledness on the inside of you with God's objective truth. That's how we live healthy. Let me just illustrate it this way. This is a bottle of mineral water. Now, it says that this mineral water is pure, and it says that it's been infused with what we would call essential minerals, at least the, the uh, sales on the outside uh, cover says that these are essential minerals to promote health in your life. And I think that most of us would agree that anyone who drinks pure water has a better chance of promoting health in their life. But what if somebody said, well, there's no way to know the truth. There's no difference between purity and poison. Whatever you drink, whatever I drink, becomes the truth for me. There's no objectivity, whether it's purity or poison. Parents, that's what our children listen to day in and day out on their cell phones or when they're watching TV. They're basically told that there's no real difference between purity and poison. And so to that child, exploration and experimentation is an opportunity to discover your own truth, but not if it's poison. If it's poison, it's an opportunity to destroy everything healthy about your life. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches objective truth. Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end is the way of death. And when truth corrects behavior and attitudes, truth is promoting health and is calling you in grace and mercy to turn from poison. We're called to live in sound doctrine. So first we're to nourish. We nourish by correcting. We nourish by commending. Think about Psalm chapter 1. It says, How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't listen to anyone who promotes poison as a healthy way of life. But it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he drinks deeply. He meditates on it day and night. And he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Paul tells Timothy, you're called to nourish the souls of your people on the authoritative truth of the work of God. Now, I mentioned that Paul has warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that when I leave, this is what he said, when my departure comes, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that for years I did not cease night and day to admonish every one of you with tears. 
And I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Paul says, this is the ministry, Timothy, that you've been charged to, the appointment that you've received. But if you'll notice, he also says that you're to nurture relationships. Look in verse 5 there. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. He's talking about that conduct and content flow one from the other. He's saying that the gospel is not simply about belief. It's also about behavior. And we are to nurture a community where the gospel is the center of all of our, all of our relationships. If you are a member of this church, that's a challenging question to ask. Who, are the, who, who takes and fills the center of all your relationships? Are they gospel-centered relationships? Where others in that circle of relationship are commending to you the word of God's grace to build you up? Are there people that are offering you poison along the admixture of the purity of the Word of God? Are you in a Bible study? Are you connecting deeply in relationships by sharing honestly your struggles and by asking others in your vulnerability and transparency to speak into your struggles? Or are you just living, you might say, on your own? We do have people in this church that come to church, but they really live to themselves. Their community is really not here in the household of faith. I'll tell you, you will not make it as a believer in Jesus Christ in any day, but definitely not in this day, if your most significant relationships are not those who are centered on the gospel. I mentioned that Sim Fulcher's funeral was last week on a Tuesday, and I was privileged to be a part of that and privileged to know Sim, and it reminded me what an amazing gift this church has been to so many, but to me as well. I really believe that lives like Sim and those that have gone before us in this church, they really teach us how to anchor our lives in Jesus Christ. But they also teach us how to find that compass of guidance from God's Word. And they point to the finish line. In my brief homily, I talked about an anchor, a compass, and a finish line. The complete picture of what it means to be a part of the household of faith. What about you? What is your anchor? The foundation of your decision-making and your happiness. What is your compass? how you define and direct your decisions. What is your finish line? Your goals, your aspirations, your hopes, and your achievements. If you're not a member of a church, I'll say to you tonight, this is the way you choose a church. You choose a church that will nourish you on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a church that will nurture you in relationships centered on God. What about you tonight? 
Does that describe your experience? What decisions do you need to make to shift and change your patterns in relationships? As we go through 1 Timothy, we'll see many themes. I was going to share those with you tonight, but because of the lack of time, I'll assign that to Chris Williams to begin next Sunday night, going over the major themes that we'll walk through. But I will tell you that this weekend, I had somewhat of an emotional, uh, reflective time of both reality and joy. My wife and I, along with two of our children, watched The Jesus Revolution. I don't know if y'all have seen the Jesus Revolution movie, but it's a historic story about how God began to save hippies on the West Coast and how they began, these former drug addicts and those who had found only poison in their lives, they began to find hope and joy in Jesus Christ. They began to be a part of a fellowship that spread all across the nation and all across the world. And though we weren't the same age as that group, that movement found me and found Sandra. Sandra was a high school senior. I was a freshman in college. And people who'd been impacted by that Jesus movement led us to Christ. But I'll tell you one thing that they did that I was so thankful for. They invited me to their church. They brought me to Briarwood Presbyterian Church, a place where gospel truth nourishes souls and a place where relationships where the gospel is centered nurtures community. It wasn't long before I was one of the first three people to join this new campus ministry. We didn't have a name at the time. We just called ourselves Discipleship. And it wasn't long after that that we realized we needed a name because we were trying to invite other people to be a part of what we were doing. I won't tell you how the name became Campus Outreach, but in several short years, there was a team that was sent right here to Augusta, Georgia. I had a two-year-old, an eight-week-old, and a wife, five young staff. We stood right there. We took those vows, just like you did, Campus Outreach staff. That was 34 years ago. And to think that now my appointment is to nurture and nourish you and send you out, I just couldn't be more joyful or thankful. But I started thinking about my church experience. This church has taught me how to live well. This church has taught me how to love well. This church has taught me how to struggle well. This church has taught me how to suffer well. And now as I watch even the saints before me, this church is teaching me how to die well. Why haven't I wiped out? Why haven't I washed out? Why didn't I drift out? How come I'm not burned out? God planted me in a church 
where love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith was the center of our lives. I'm here to say thank you tonight. But I'm also here to say we have an assignment. We're called to pass this faith to the next generation. We're called with children and youth and Westminster schools and campus outreach and international missions, we're called to spread the authoritative message of grace, mercy, and peace and build the church of Jesus Christ. It's not social work. It's not community organizing. It's not philanthropy. It's advancing the kingdom of God under the authority of King Jesus. Let's pray and thank him for that privilege. What a privilege we have, King Jesus, to live under your authority and to have your smile, to be known as true sons and daughters, to inherit the family business, and to have an appointment to nourish through the truth and nurture in gospel relationships. I thank you for the way that you've kept me and kept us. The church in Ephesus had wolves, Lord, we will have wolves. We ask for your protection. We ask, Lord, that you would use us, if Jesus doesn't return, for 200 more years to commend the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. All through this city, with all kinds of people, least, lost, new, near, diverse, and to spread this gospel around this land and around the world. You can do it again, Father. The Jesus movement, the first and second great awakening, the Reformation, the early church, would you do it again? Use us, let us be a part of your great work. We pray your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.